Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Michael Gordon. Today on the program, we are talking about perfectly imperfect. How can we come to a new relationship with ourselves and with our world that things are okay if they're not perfect? Broken can be beautiful. If you're listening to the program for the first time, welcome to the show. It is Thursday, July the 4th. Happy Independence Day to all of our American friends. And if you're listening to the archive show, thanks for tuning in. All of our shows are available on blogtalkradio.com or on iTunes. And you can share them with your friends and share links and find us on Facebook, on our uh, Facebook page. Or go to the splash page here on Blog Talk Radio and peruse through all the past topics on the show. Let's get right into the topic today. And as I said, we're talking about perfectly imperfect and how can we develop a new relationship with ourselves. That's not destructive. So let's look at, first of all, the nature of um, perfectionism. And this is something that's um, widely discussed in the psychological literature because it does relate to, in a way, uh, a kind of personality disorder. And it's related, certainly related to anxiety disorders. Um, perfectionism really um, is a sign of low, can be a sign of low self-worth. There is some distinction to be made there. Um, between what we can call an adaptive type of perfectionism, um, which is a you know um, a recent article in uh, Psychology Today magazine talked about um, obsession being a positive trait. That if you're focused on a project uh, or some kind of campaign, then being obsessive can be something that you can use to your advantage because it keeps you focused and determined and um, and on on track with, you know, what you're working on. On the other hand, the maladaptive form of uh, perfectionism, or let's call it obsession, uh, can be a very destructive quality because it makes us uh, lose our perspective and become overly focused on things. And again, in an obsessive type way, um, that becomes counterproductive because we we lose our efficiency, we lose our joy and our flow. And I've talked about flow in the previous programs, um, about the effortlessness that goes with being in sync with um, our higher values and our purpose and our passion. 
And so perfectionism goes back to this uh, running theme in the program, uh, talking about uh, ego, and ego being something that doesn't exist, it's never really existed, it exists only as a concept, and as a concept even, it's problematic, because we tend to edify and, uh, not edify, but reify, and to, and to reinforce the uh, notion that the ego is something that's uh, we objectify, that it's a, it's a fixed identity um, that we relate to in a personable way within ourselves. And again, um, the ego becomes this almost like a piece of driftwood that we cling to, that we want to have some sense of uh, solidity in the world, something is certain. And the problem is, is that it traps us because we have to, uh, it's like running up a, a, a hill with loose uh, soil or gravel. You can never really fully get traction because the, relating to the ego in that way as a measure of our worth in the world can uh, be a very elusive thing and, again, we can be a focus of our obsession. That we somehow have to put our focus on what is impossible and that is trying to beat impermanence in the world. That we can avoid or avert death or sickness, or old age, or suffering, um, by somehow having perfect as a concept. And so that becomes very claustrophobic and very, um, we fetishize this concept in a way, in the, in the way that we sort of would covet an object and say that we want it to be perfect forever. We want our car to be perfect, we want our house to be perfect, we want our clothing to be perfect, and we want our all of those things are an extension of this relationship with ourselves and with our ego. That's I've talked about in previous programs uh, the concept of enmeshment, and that is the lack of differentiation that uh, that should occur in early childhood, where we are able to identify and tolerate other people and, and first objects in our world as we're infants and toddlers, and then other people as separate from ourselves. And so we develop a sense of relationship and interrelationship to the world and therefore, uh, again, tolerance for what is. And of course, none of these things are really separate from us, but on a fundamental level, um, we don't identify with them as being us, which we start out in life not knowing. And so we can become enmeshed with the world and the objects of the world, just like we can of objects of our uh, love uh, love relationships, uh, where we have a sense of entitlement or expectation or just a really root sense of um, security intertwined with the idea of uh, having control over things that are seemingly external. And everything is subjective. Everything is the result of our projections and uh, our relationship within ourselves and how we filter our experience of the world. So whether you look at being obsessive about cleanliness or, again, a prized possession, or if you're putting too much pressure on your partner and your relationship, it is all stemming from the same root cause, which is the diversion into uh, unrealistic expectations and a, and, a, and a destructive, obsessive quality um, 
as a, as a distraction from the real problem, which is that we all know that we don't have control, that we don't have control over life and death and sickness. And so that sets us up to have that very um, afflictive kind of emotional relationship with ourselves and, and to the world. And so how do we counteract that? Well, um, intuitively, um, the inverse of that, or the flip of that, is to look at um, how we relate to things in that way and how, what, the, what the destructive quality of that is. And to embrace that which we cannot make um, perfect. In other words, the world is already broken. There's a great teaching from a, a, a Buddhist teacher, and I can't recall his name at the, at the moment, but it was given uh, a talk given by a, a Theravadan Buddhist uh, in Australia who described going to visit his teacher, and um, or someone was visiting this uh, monk and went into his sitting room and... Uh, there was a beautiful crystal glass, drinking drinking glass. And the visitor, you know, remarked to this monk, uh, what a beautiful glass. And the monk said, yes. And he says, it's, uh, when I look at that glass, I already see it as being broken. And so the visitor asked him to explain. And he said, well, if I covet that glass, if I treasure the glass in a way, then I set myself up for heartbreak because it's, maybe the glass will get broken at some point. Maybe it'll fall over and smash onto the floor or maybe it'll get accidentally broken somehow. So if I see it as already broken in my mind, then I can appreciate it for what it is and I'm not attached to it. So it doesn't mean you are negating that object. It doesn't mean that you're, again, in a destructive way saying I'm going to have a negative relationship to it. But that doesn't mean necessarily that you are clinging or coveting, as I say. It's more of a neutral relationship. So you can still appreciate things without attaching to them, without attaching yourself or your well-being or, um, again, more importantly, setting yourself up to uh, be really uh, trying to divert that discomfort with impermanence um, by making something perfect or permanent. That, that this is the one thing that I know, this glass, this relationship, this companion animal, this shirt, this uh, objet d'art, this, this car, all these things can be a symbol of our uh, very truthfully a pathological need to have control and to have certainty. And how do we take that orient orientation towards ourselves? One of the things that's uh, very useful in clinical practices as a psychotherapist is to help people with this issue because there's, a, again, a very destructive uh, tendency towards ourselves that we want to be perfect that we want things to be okay. We want something secure to hang on to. And I remember coming across a phrase that perfect stands in the way of perfectly good. 
Now, we have to be careful here because, you know, there's nothing wrong with excellence. And um, good enough can be a way of sabotaging ourselves to say, I don't need to reach for my highest goal. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about striving for excellence. We're talking about, about absolutism. And absolutism has a very, um, I would say, almost a fascistic quality to it because it is inhumane. And the only way that I could see absolutism being valuable is when you look at absolutism in terms of in the Buddhist practice, what they what's prescribed as uh, working towards enlightenment. Now, even in that practice, there's not a pressure on yourself to become enlightened. It's something that's a process. It's it's what's described as path. And so, absolute enlightenment is a goal, but it's not a goal in the sense that we, if we don't attain that goal by a certain period of time, then it has a destructive quality that it becomes punishment. And there's a lot of now uh, empirical evidence or re research-based evidence uh, from empirical research, uh, for example, with exercise. And people who have a so-called type A personality and who engage in really rigorous, high-intensity you know, workouts and, and high cardio, for example, are actually uh, engaging in counterproductive behavior. Because if you ex exercise too intensely for too long a period of time, you induce a stress response in the body, and the stress response in, in, it counteracts all the benefits that you want to get from exercise, which is, first of all, reduction of stress, so that's gone. And, um, and definitely in terms of your metabolic response, um, you trigger more cortisol release, which is a stress hormone, which increases your stress level, and all the hormonal levels in your body, which um, go with um, impulse control in terms of uh, food and then also fat retention in the body, et cetera, et cetera. So you're working across purposes at that point. And of course, again, going back to the concept of flow, when you put too much pressure on yourself and you have unrealistic expectations, it becomes kind of pathological. But that aside, it takes the joy out of what you're doing, it takes the passion out of what you're doing, and it becomes demotivating. So if you find yourself in a very negative headspace around uh, a project or in your relationships in life, it can be a signal to step back and ask yourself if you if you are operating from a perfectionist standpoint. If if you start to follow that impulse for things to be right, and there's a kind of a heat quality to it. There's a, a almost like, a, you know, a, a rash-like angry quality to it. And you can follow that sensation within yourself, that instinct to make things perfect, and locate it in your body, and identify it as a bodily sensation, and give it a shape and a texture or a temperature. And you can start to safely identify and locate that feeling within yourself as an experience 
in your body somatically and follow that feeling. Give it space and that will allow it to kind of dissolve or at least transform. If you, you know, in, in a kind of deductive reasoning kind of way, you're undoing this complicated knot of emotion and mental anguish. Much like you would solving a puzzle or more appropriately undoing a knot. Remember that emotions stem from thoughts. So if you're able to follow the emotion or identify the body sensation, then you can identify the emotion that goes with it and then you can identify the thought. And if and when you bring it back to a thought, it becomes very workable because you can uh, challenge the rationality of a thought. Right? So, um, for example, um, if you have a perfectionist type driving thought, if I don't do this perfectly, then it's all for nothing, which is, a, again, a very um, black and white, split thinking, kind of absolutist way of looking at things. It's very polarized thinking, good or bad. And that goes back to that, what I've talked about previously in the program is a sign of, uh, of this sort of child ego state. I don't mean that you are an immature person. I just mean that um, you're operating in a, in a lower level of consciousness, if you will, a less de- developed way. And that's, in therapy, a sign that something confusing or overwhelming happened in childhood and may have um, be triggering you into that reactive kind of approach. So we you know you can catch that thought and recognize that it's being very black and white. And you can ask yourself, well, you know, can I make that 100% true? So if this doesn't uh work out perfectly, then it's all for nothing. Well, what would have to make that what would have to be true to make that 100% true? Um that there would be no value in it. Well, if there was no value in it, you would have started in the first place. And, of course, you can help somebody through this when they're in a really irrational moment. Um, an example that would be of that cycling kind of uh, uh, self-critical, self-loathing uh, pattern or, or behavior is uh, this sort of viral video that went out across the Internet of this um, poor uh, English fellow who uh, was trying to um, teach himself a, a guitar part on his acoustic guitar. And, um, you know, people have looked at it with a lot of uh, ridicule and humor and maybe pity because uh, the fellow just obviously has some emotional issues and he's a very violent anger uh, towards himself and, and he abruptly stops and starts and stops and starts in an obsessive way. And, of course, in that uh, emotionality and very highly irascible state, he doesn't get anywhere. And he's setting himself up to just keep banging his head against the wall. And he literally ends up smashing his guitar on camera. And it's quite shocking in kind of a voyeuristic way. And what that teaches us is something about the nature of our mind. That at that point, we become fixated on our response rather than the actual thing at hand. If your focus was on learning the part better, then of course someone there who is not emotionally wrapped up and it would guide you through it and allow you to 
connect to uh, the joy of what you, you're trying to do because you, the goal is to enjoy playing a piece of music and to make it manageable and to have small incremental uh, steps that are encouraging and that give you reward, et cetera, et cetera. All those basic principles that we understand. Well, that's a lot of detail, as I'm prone to say on the program, but it's true. And uh, without a dialogue going here, I'm I'm going to leave this topic as it is. And uh, I hope that you've uh, found this interesting and that you can uh, derive some insight out of the program today. Maybe go a little easier on yourself and recognize that the world is perfectly broken. Before I forget, there's a wonderful Japanese aesthetic and cultural value called wabi-sabi. It's just as it sounds. And it's it's the appreciation in Japanese aesthetic and culture of things being imperfect, kind of a flawed beauty. They'll actually take cracked vases or pottery and fill them with a gold filling or put them on display with the light highlighting the crack as a way of appreciating nature as what it is, as an imperfect but beautiful and broken and raw, again, flawed, intrinsic, natural state. And that's what we are. We are... um, We would only think of ourselves as flawed if we're starting with thinking of ourselves having to be perfect. But we are perfect because we are uh, conscious beings and we can experience all of these emotions with an oversight of compassion and understanding. And that's something we're striving for. Have a great day. And don't let perfect get in the way of being perfectly good. I'm Michael Gordon. We'll see you next time on The Morning Week. I thought together when you said stay